Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us to investigate the text of the Bible in regard to Jesus' famous and favorite topic, what he called the Gospel or Good News about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that Jesus was a first century Jew and spoke to his audiences in ways that would have been clearly understood by first century Jews. When Jesus came into Galilee announcing his gospel message, summarized for us in Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 as an appeal for repentance and belief in the gospel about the kingdom of God, Jesus was using terminology which would have been understood by his audiences. In those days, everybody who knew anything about the Bible knew what the kingdom of God was. Today that term kingdom of God has become nebulous and foggy and vague in the minds of Bible readers. This is a serious weakness. It makes no sense at all that we can respond to Jesus' appeal to repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom, Mark 1:14 and 15, if we don't know what the kingdom of God is. How in the world can one believe in the kingdom of God if one does not have a clear understanding of the phrase kingdom of God. Now the kingdom of God was one of the best known terms in the religious world of Jesus' day. The kingdom of God was about as well known as the Constitution or the expression Uncle Sam or the Tower of London if you're from Britain. The kingdom of God was the national hope of Israel. Anybody familiar with the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, what we rather regrettably call the Old Testament, knew that the prophets of Israel had announced a time coming called the Day of the Lord. The day, that is, when God would intervene to change the affairs of mankind forever. The Bible writers divide time into two major blocks. There's what is called the present evil age, Galatians 1.4. That's to say time existing at present, in fact from the time of Adam onwards, right up until the future second coming of Jesus, at which point the present evil age will cease and the future age of the kingdom of God will begin. It's a very simple concept. The Bible thinks in a linear fashion. It thinks horizontally. It does not think in terms of being on this earth as distinct from going vertically to heaven, as is often the case today, it thinks of entrance into the future age of the kingdom of God to be inaugurated at the second coming of Jesus. Galatians 1.4 is a precious verse. Paul speaks there about the present evil age and his pessimism about conditions in society as presently organized in opposition to God is due to the fact that he recognized that Satan is the God of this age. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Satan has been given a great measure of control and domination over present societies throughout the world. And so if you feel in any way disillusioned about the condition of things on this earth, you're in good company. You're in good company, in fact, with the apostles themselves. The Bible takes a dim view of the way things are now, in fact, it holds out little hope of a vast improvement this side of the second coming. 
Now, there may be upturns and downturns in the way things are, but fundamentally, the New Testament tells us that Satan is in charge of things generally. The whole world, said John in 1 John 5, verse 19, the whole world lies in the arms of the devil, is under the control of the devil. In Revelation 12, verse 9, you'll find that Satan is said to be there the deceiver of the whole world. But according to Revelation chapter 20, the time is coming when the devil is going to be no longer permitted to deceive the nations. The problem with our society in the world at large is the issue of deception. The devil is very clever at telling lies. He has the world deceived, according to the apostles. And the only antidote to deception is to embrace with all energy and urgency the text of the Bible, God's Word, which speaks the truth to us. The only way to discern between truth and lie is to immerse yourself in the words and the teachings and the sayings of Jesus himself and of his divinely appointed apostles, as well, of course, as the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Now, Jesus came preaching and announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. He said that the kingdom of God was at hand. Anybody who knew the Hebrew Bible knew well that in Daniel 2, verse 44, the prophet Daniel had been given a vision of a time coming when present evil world governments would be finally and ultimately, decisively and forever replaced by the coming of what's called the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. The God of heaven, we read in Daniel 2, verse 44, will set up a kingdom which can never be destroyed. Now, further information about this great political upheaval of the future is found in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. And I recommend the seventh chapter of Daniel as a wonderful blueprint or outline of God's scheme of history. A whole philosophy of history is to be found there in Daniel chapter 7. If you look in verses 18 and 22 and 27, you will find there repeated three times the fact that present evil governments, and in fact a final anti-Christian government of the worst type, is going to be finally brought to an end. And in Daniel 7:27, you'll read that the Son of Man, and that's a symbol, by the way, not only of Jesus, but of the saints also, the saints are going to receive the kingdom of God and all nations and tongues and races are going to be submitted to the saints. That's to say to Jesus and the faithful group of Christians who go with him, the faithful believers of all the ages, the whole kingdom under the whole heaven, notice, on this earth renewed is going to be given to the people of the saints and their kingdom is going to last forever, forever and ever, without interruption. And so there is a bright future for our planet, but it's not to be achieved apart from a great deal of tribulation and trouble destined to precede that time of unparalleled prosperity to be enjoyed by the earth in the new society of the kingdom of God coming on this planet. Now, the story of the Bible, the drama of the Bible as it unfolds, is essentially simple. One must begin 
with the call of Abraham in Genesis 12 to understand a fundamental fact about the gospel. Remember that the gospel was preached to Abraham, according to Paul in Galatians 3, verse 8. That's very interesting. Did you know that the gospel was proclaimed to Abraham? Could you explain the Christian gospel by referring to the life of Abraham beginning in Genesis 12? In Genesis 12, you have a wonderful blueprint also of God's scheme. In those first four verses of Genesis 12, we learn that Abraham was required to give up the things dearest to his heart, his family, his country, his kindred, and so on, and to depart in sheer faith in God for a land that he knew nothing about, but a land which God was going to show him. And in Genesis 13 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, verse 8 particularly, you'll learn that God promised there by an oath-bound, covenanted promise to give the land of Canaan, where Abraham was residing as a resident alien, to give that land both to Abraham and to his seed or descendants, his posterity, forever. Did you catch that? The gospel has a twofold focus. Not only does it promise famous descendants to Abraham, but also the gift of territory of land. Now, upon that double focus of the gospel, the Christian gospel of the New Testament is based. In fact, what Jesus came preaching as the gospel was a confirmation, an affirmation of the promises made beforehand in the Hebrew Bible to Abraham, who is known as the father of the faithful. You will find that expression used of Abraham's status as the father of the faithful in Romans chapter 4. And Christians in that same fourth chapter of Romans are said to be the children of Abraham. In other words, Abraham is our spiritual father. And we are to share, as Paul put it, in the faith of Abraham, to believe the same things as Abraham believed, and to conduct ourselves in obedience to Messiah in the same way as Abraham behaved himself before the Almighty God of the Hebrew Bible. Now, Abraham was promised two things, descendants and land, and, of course, blessings associated with those two promises. Now, the land promise, the territorial promise, the promise of the land of Canaan, the promised land, comes into the New Testament in the famous saying of Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 5. Jesus reiterated that land promise to Abraham by stating that the meek are going to inherit the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5. You see, in the Greek language, there's no difference between the word for earth and the word for land. It was well known that the territorial promise made to Abraham had never been fulfilled. Did you know that in Acts chapter 7, verse 5, we read that Abraham did not receive a square foot of the land promised to him. Now, it's true that he did actually buy from the natives a cave and a field in which to bury his wife Sarah. That's the only part of the land which he actually owned. He paid 400 shekels for it, as you'll find in the book of Genesis. But Stephen, referring to Abraham as Stephen preached that sermon which cost him his life, 
noted that Abraham had not received a square foot of the promised land, and yet God had promised to give it to him and his seed forever. Now this raises a fascinating question. How can it be that the land was promised to Abraham personally, to Isaac personally, to Jacob personally, and to Israel, the descendants of Abraham? How can that be if, in fact, Abraham is now dead and did not receive, as Stephen said in Acts 7:5, one square foot of the land promised to him? This immediately creates a tension We're given a promise by God, an absolutely solemn and binding promise by God that Abraham was to receive the land, and yet we know that Abraham never received it. In fact, he died, as the book of Hebrews says in the 11th chapter, he died not having received the promises. So what happened? Did God's famous promise of land forever to Abraham fail? Well, obviously not. God cannot lie, the Bible says. Now, the solution to the tension is simply this. Abraham must come to life again from death in order to receive the great land promise, which is indeed the inheritance of the kingdom of God. Romans 4.13 says it plainly. The promise was made to Abraham that he should be heir of the world. Blessed are the meek, they're going to inherit the earth, Jesus said in Matthew 5.5. The story is essentially simple. Abraham is dead. To Abraham belongs the promise of the land. Therefore, Abraham must come to life again in the resurrection to receive the promised gift of the earth. We invite you to request from us our free book on the kingdom of God and join us again as we continue with our examination of Jesus' famous topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.